You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Third Squad is a podcast about war. Every episode contains strong language and descriptions of violence that may not be suitable for all listeners. When I got kicked out, I had no benefits or no direction or guideline or none of my friends I'd served with around me or in my life. I started selling cocaine. So, I mean, and I was going to school as well, but how the hell else am I going to pay for that? I'm back to square one. What did that feel like for you? Sucked. Felt like fucking defeat. I would describe it like the same way a guy feels when he walks in on his fucking wife laying in bed with another dude. It felt that shitty. I'm Elliot Woods. This is Third Squad. Episode 8. Bad Paper. After my trip to see David Richvalski in Alaska, I knocked out a 1,700-mile drive from my home in Montana across the barren corn and soy fields of the Midwest to Kentucky horse country where spring has arrived and the trees are bursting with pink and white blossoms. I picked up Tommy along the way, and now we're rolling through a tidy subdivision north of Lexington. This is like the most Edward Scissorhands-y neighborhood we've been to so far. I think it's nice. It is nice. We're looking for Third Squad veteran Scott McKetchen's house. Dang, Gina. Is this his house? Yeah, that's his house. Look at the Marine Corps thing on the license plate. Yeah, but does he live here by himself? I guess we'll find out. Maybe he lives here with his dogs. Probably. Like everybody else. McKetchen was a troubled kid before he joined the Marine Corps. I remember him telling me about it back at patrol base fires when I interviewed him on his cot. I'm PFC Scott McKetchen. I'm 20 years old. I'm from Pleasanton, California. Great. He was stripped down to his shorts and had a big wad of grizzly snuff in his lip. So then the first question is, why did you join the Marine Corps? I joined the Marine Corps because... I was kicked out of my house while I was going to college and uh, just started uh, being financially unstable. So I joined the Marine Corps so I could uh, basically have a stable lifestyle, I guess, and get away from home. His reasons for enlisting were almost identical to my own. Tell me a little bit about, just very briefly, about the kid that you were that that didn't do so out of college, because I was actually that kid, too. I was a kid in college that went to college and just wanted to party, 
didn't care too much about school or think what I could possibly lose if I were to just do nothing but party. And sure enough, I lost it, but I fucking manned up and I joined the military. And here I am, staying in Afghanistan. Things seem to be looking up for McKetchen. His house is large and well-maintained like all the others in the neighborhood, with a perfect lawn and happy little shrubs. The two-car garage is wide open and there's a new-looking white infinity parked inside. And there's McKetchen swinging open the door to greet us. What's up, guys? What's Howdy. Up? How you doing? Good. How are you? I'm good. Come on in. This He's wearing a gray Marine Corps hoodie with the sleeves pushed up, showing skull and spiderweb tattoos running up his arms. And he's got a German Shepherd by his side that's the size of a small pony. The dog's name is Ruger. Ruger. Dude, I got, I got him, like, basically as soon as I got out of the Marine Corps. And when was that? 2012. So, yeah, dude, he's, he's been my, like, wingman. Oh, cool. Ever since. What's up, dude? When I met McKetchen in 2011, he was stick skinny and looked like a child. Now he's 30, and he's still a string bean. His jeans are falling off his hips. And even though he's got the same bright smile I remember from Sangin, the youth has gone from his face. He's got a shadow of dark stubble and circles under his eyes. We take our shoes off? Uh, no, it's all right. You sure? Yeah, it's all good. McKetchen's house looks barely lived in. I just got the place in May, so... Nice. Yeah. Great neighborhood. First really house, so... There's a big TV on the wall above a gas fireplace with an Xbox on the shelf underneath and an overstuffed couch under a large print of graffiti. Ruger the dog has an entire bedroom to himself, complete with a queen bed and his very own flat-screen TV. The place is immaculate, almost like a realtor prepared it for an open house. Except for one little thing. Sorry about all the pot. I'm a bit of a stoner. (laughs) Back when McKetchen was living in the squalor of patrol base fires, he told me he wanted to hit the big time someday. After my contract's up, uh, I plan on leaving the Marine Corps, and then I'm, I want to use my GI Bill and go, to, go back to college and hopefully get a degree in business, graphic design, something, and then get rich one day. By all appearances, he's on his way, even though he's not currently employed. Well, I just got fired, dude. So, McKetchen uh, tells me he was yeah, working part-time at a nursing home, world, but he got let go after an argument with another employee. <laughs> it was a shitty job. Yeah. No, the details are kind of vague. Anyway, McKetchen says he's not too worried about it. But financially, I'm great, so like, whatever. <laughs> they like, screw him. It's a relatively minor bump in the road he's been traveling since Sangin. When I got back from Afghanistan, a few months after uh, we returned home, I got NJP'd and stuff, and uh, that was scary. That's where it began since the last time I saw you. So what does NJP mean? Non-judicial punishment. It's, uh, it's not good. Are you able to tell us what happened? Yeah, 100%. Um, the whole unit knows. So it's no, sh- no secret. I have uh, no shame in it, honestly. I, can, I think, if anything, I grew from it. I just turned 21. I, we'd been back in the States for about 10 months or whatever. And it was New Year's, and we had a lead block, a 96-hour uh, lead block, and one of my friends had some cocaine in uh, San Diego. And so I did some blow, and uh, you know I thought I had enough time to get clean, um, and we had a drug test that uh, after we got back from that lead block, and I, and I failed it. And uh, 
got in some serious trouble with the Marines and stuff. And uh, so long story short, that's what got me out of the Marine Corps. That vacation fuck-up cost McKetchen more than his job. He got kicked out with an other-than-honorable discharge, a stain on his record known in the military as bad paper that followed him back into civilian life. There are five main categories of military discharge. Of the five, honorable is the only one that doesn't have negative consequences. The others are general under honorable conditions, other than honorable, bad conduct, and dishonorable. Guys who, like, rape people will get fucking bad conducts. So to get a dishonorable discharge, you have to, like, pretty much kill somebody. Now, the other than honorable, it's basically just a, hey, thanks, we used you. We're not going to give you any benefits. Thanks for your fucking time. That's it. So that's what you got. That's what I got initially. Which means, and this is the important thing, that means you're cut off from VA benefits? Any health care benefits, mental health, any anything. Compensation, college. college, educational benefits. Everything you joined the service for that your recruiter lured you in with, you're no longer entitled to. So I'd gone through everything. I'd gone through the combat deployment, and now I'm being looked at like a piece of shit. Which I know I'm not, you know, even at the time. No, I'm not. I think they're pieces of shit for not fucking giving me a fucking chance because I was a fucking good Marine and I know my Marines would attest to that. I got kicked to the curb because I made one poor choice after flawless service, I would say. Getting kicked out of the Marine Corps derailed McKetchen. It's fucking crazy. You're going, you know, six foot into the deep end quicker than like anything and and you have no clue where to get a footing in life when they fucking throw you out on the streets and you can't even go see a therapist after you just got back from seeing your friends blown in half that's fucked up In a matter of months, he'd gone from fighting for his life in Sangin alongside the insanely tight Brotherhood of Third Squad to being out on his ass with the stigma of an other-than-honorable discharge hanging around his neck. He was totally isolated, and he was desperate. When I got kicked out, I had no benefits or no direction or guideline or none of my friends I'd served with around me or in my life. I started selling cocaine. So, I mean... And I was going to school as well. But how the hell else am I going to pay for that? I'm back to square one. What did that feel like for you? Sucked. Felt like fucking defeat. I would describe it like the same way a guy feels when he walks in on his fucking wife laying in bed with another dude. It felt that shitty. Because of his bad paper discharge, McKetchen wasn't eligible for the GI Bill, which pays education expenses for veterans with honorable discharges. His parents, Cindy and Doug, were outraged by the Marine Corps' decision to throw their son out with no benefits. They told Scott they would cover his tuition, room, and board as long as he was earning passing grades. So he enrolled at Santa Barbara City College, and everything went okay for one semester. But when McKetchen started partying and doing drugs instead of going to class, his parents cut him off. That's how he wound up selling cocaine. McKetchen knew he was hurtling towards self-destruction and needed to get out of the Santa Barbara party scene. So he decided to move to a place where nothing could possibly go wrong. 
I decided Las Vegas would be a good spot to go because my uncle's a successful doctor out there. He's got his own private practice and stuff. Probably just pay me to do some bullshit job or whatever. So I was out there just doing just that, just bullshit work. Um, But I was still lost, and I was doing drugs and uh, just self-medicating. McKetchen had been out of the Marine Corps for about a year and a half when he got to Vegas, and he was still in a dark place, but he wanted to get his feet under him. His mom found out it might be possible to get his discharge upgraded with the help of a nonprofit called AMVETS, which would mean getting his VA health care and education benefits restored. She helped McKetchen get in touch with them, and they supplied a pro bono attorney to start the process. In the meantime, McKetchen was self-medicating with Xanax which he tells me led to back-to-back arrests for driving under the influence. I got a couple DUIs while I was in Las Vegas, and uh, that was another kick in the fucking gut. It was a very expensive ordeal. Uh, then I was labeled as like basically a criminal, and I had to uh, you know lose my license, so I was forced to you know take public transportation, and it's getting old real quick, you know. The first time he got a DUI, he wrecked his girlfriend's car. The second time, a neighbor called the cops when she saw him passed out behind the wheel in his driveway. After that second DUI, McKetchen spent 10 days in jail. That's where he saw an apparition from his troubled childhood. Dad was in jail for a little bit. This junkie comes up to me. Clearly, like, he's coming off of heroin, no doubt about it. Because I think he's like, hey, do I know you from somewhere? And I hadn't lived in Las Vegas that long. And I'm just like, no, man, like, I don't know you. You know, honey, I didn't want to associate with this, any of these people, to be honest with you. Um, I'd like to hold myself to a higher standard than them. He's like, no, no, man, I, I know you from somewhere. And I'm like, dude, I don't fucking know you. Like, what are you talking about? And then he's like, Red Rock Canyon School. I was there with you. And I'm thinking, like, what? And then I started putting two and two together, and the kid just looked like shit because he'd been using so much heroin. But I did recognize him once he had said that, and I was like, oh, my God. Seeing his former classmate was a wake-up call. McKetchen was fucking up again, and he knew better than anyone how much uglier things could get. We'll be back after the break. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley, and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rock the baby to sleep and slam dunk. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. 
Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Scott McKetchen was adopted as a baby. He grew up in a Bay Area suburb called Pleasanton, California. But the way McKetchen tells it, his childhood wasn't always pleasant. I was kind of a shithead kid, and I've always kind of got in trouble here and there. I was just getting fights and stuff at school and slacking off, just, you know, not going to school, stuff like that. At some point in his teenage years, he started fighting a lot with his parents. Things hit a low point when a policeman showed up at the house after McKetchen got caught stealing from his neighbor's yards. It was around that time that his parents planned a special 16th birthday party for him at his uncle's house in Vegas. He's got a super sick house and stuff. And my parents were like, hey, you want to go to stay with your Uncle Bobby for your 16th birthday? I'm like, oh, hell yeah. McKetchen thought maybe things with his parents were taking a turn. And he was right, just not in the way he expected. They tricked me, actually. I got woken up the morning of my birthday by two private investigators, and it took me up there. Up there to his new home away from home. It's called Red Rock Canyon School, and it was in St. George, Utah. Was it a boarding school for kids who were getting in trouble? Yeah, for sure. McKetchen and I have this in common, too. I got sent to a military boarding school when I was a teenager, but no one tricked me. I went voluntarily. McKetchen says he felt betrayed. I couldn't believe my parents did me like that, dude, you know. It's important for you to know that I contacted McKetchen's mom and dad to get their side of the story. They told me sending Scott to Red Rock Canyon School was the most difficult thing they'd ever done as parents, but they felt like they were out of options. His mom told me he was so out of control, stealing and lying to us, that we were afraid he would end up either dead or in jail. McKetchen tells me that for an adopted kid, being lied to and left behind was particularly rough. He felt abandoned, and no one was giving out hugs at Red Rock Canyon School. It was housed in an old hotel that looked kind of like your average La Quinta Inn, beige exterior, terracotta roof tiles, and palm tree landscaping. 
It was billed as a therapeutic center for troubled teenagers. But as McKetchen tells it, the place was more like a prison. Yeah, it was insane for sure. Um, they beat the crap out of kids up there. McKetchen says he got thrown around by the staff and saw other kids get hit. And he noticed that he had something in common with a lot of his fellow students. Most of the kids up there were adopted. And so that school had contracts from the like, state of California and stuff. If you were adopted, the state of California would pay for the kids stay there. Oregon and Washington also contracted the school to house foster kids. What McKetchen and his parents didn't know at the time was that Red Rock was in the midst of a lawsuit over allegations of child abuse by staff. More complaints piled up over the years until the state of Utah finally shut the facility down in 2019. McKetchen went there in 2006. His parents enrolled him in a nine-month program. If he could shape up during that time, he could come back home. It reminded me kind of of like something like boot camp. You know what I mean? Where you get up at the same time every morning, everyone does, and then you go get your breakfast after you do your personal hygiene and whatnot, and then you'd go from breakfast to, I think, they made us go do PT um, after breakfast, and then it'd be school. Um and school there was just a joke. It was a, it was a good place for kids to really get ahead in school because it was easy and you could catch up on your credits and stuff. So I actually got a lot done. There was nothing to like about the school, but McKetchen did well in the highly structured environment. He finished the program on schedule and was back home in time for his junior year. But after everything that happened, he says he never really felt comfortable in his parents' house again. I felt like I was faking who I was so that I could just have a roof over my head. My, my parents' house, you know what I mean? Which I don't think any kid should have to do. But I, I mean, yeah, shit, dude, I, I faked the funk. And then once I graduated high school, um, I got the hell out of there immediately. McKetchen's relationship with his parents was strained, but they helped him find and pay for an apartment when he moved out and they paid his tuition at Las Positas Community College in nearby Livermore. McKetchen did well his first semester, but he wasn't quite as ready for adulthood as he thought. I uh, was working a shitty job at Jack in the Box. And, uh, you know, living in the San Francisco Bay Area, 18 years old, and then trying to go to college, it was a shitty life, man. In his second semester, McKetchen lost interest in school. He was still fighting with his parents, and the self-discipline he developed at Red Rock Canyon School was failing him. The military suddenly seemed like a way to get back on track. And in McKetchen's mind, there was only one branch worth joining. I loved the old-school Marine Corps commercials you know, that every kid would watch, and it's got, like, the marine scale in the cliff. The passage is intense, but if you complete the journey... And then he gets his NCO sword at the top. Like, I just thought that was the sickest uniform. The few, the proud, the marines. That's why I picked the marines. The marine recruiters had McKetchen right where they wanted him in need of an injection of self-confidence and a kick in the ass. You go into the service because of some incentive that they're offering you. I mean, why else would you fucking do it? 
You know what I mean? Like, so I'm going in there. Yeah, I need something to build my life on. I don't really have shit going for me. They're going to pay me. They're going to pay for my school when I get out. So those are the those are the big incentives for, I think, most guys to join. And they just want to serve their country, too. And they think it's honorable. I do think it's honorable. When McKetchen began the recruitment process in the spring of 2010, he wasn't exactly a dream recruit. Basically, they're kind of monitoring you before you go to boot camp. And they're making sure you're still in shape and fit to go. And basically not getting in trouble no new tattoos, and I got new tattoos, and my recruiter was pissed. It wasn't just the tattoos, either. At the time, I was a piece of shit in the eyes of a Marine Corps recruiter. Like, I was still smoking weed, you know, but they're trying to drill into your head. Get clean, because we can take you, you know? And, like, I was showing potential. I was, I was in shape. I was running probably four or five, maybe six miles every day. Before I went to boot camp, because I knew, like, I didn't want to be struggling too hard, you know what I mean? If you go there out of shape, it's going to be way more difficult. When McKetchen first told his mom and dad that he wanted to join the Marines, they didn't fall into a patriotic swoon. It was 2010, and there were two wars going on. My parents were fucking so against it. So against it. Cindy and Doug McKetchen had ample reason to worry, because Scott was dead set on becoming a Marine Corps infantryman. Along with the extreme danger he would likely face on the front lines, they worried that he would finish his enlistment with no marketable skills. There just aren't a lot of jobs for trigger pullers in the civilian economy. My dad, when I enlisted, he tried to pay me not to go. Basically, McKetchen's dad offered to pay him to do odd jobs and stay in school. Doug had another reason for wanting to keep Scott out of the military. As a working-class teenager with a draft card in the late 1960s, he marched with anti-war demonstrators in San Francisco. Doug's draft number never got called, but he says he probably would have gone to Canada if it had. He didn't think the Vietnam War was worth his life. And when it came to his own son's life, he didn't feel differently about Iraq and Afghanistan. But the father's opposition only made the son dig in. I kind of always looked at him like he dodged the draft a little bit. You know, he didn't want to go. I, I get it. I don't think anyone should have to go do that if they don't want to, you know. But then again, you know, I I didn't really have options. So this was my option, was that I'm creating for myself to go into the service to better my life, basically. But then the second I'm doing something for myself, I get my father trying to pay me not to do it. And I'm just like, look. What the fuck? Like, you know? Hell no. And you were 18, so you didn't need them to sign? No. McKetchen shipped to Marine Corps Recruit Depot San Diego in June 2010. Tell me about what it was like for you when you showed up. What are your first memories of getting there? Yeah, it's the same as every single Marine Corps recruit. So you get off of a bus and they line you up on these yellow footprints. And they basically strip every bit of individuality out of you. So everyone gets the same haircut. They get their civilian clothes taken away. You're all dressed the same, and you just get accustomed to being yelled at. So they're trying to make you a little tougher, I guess, you know? What do you remember about how you evolved over the course of that training? They make you work for everything to be proud of. Just every little thing, you earn it. 
For instance, like boot bands, just something to hold your camis up over your boots. You don't get those when you first arrive. I think you go a whole week just looking like, basically looking like a fool. So it's like they kind of bring you down so low that every single little thing you do get in regards to uniform or whatever, or in just little accomplishments that they have to, you know, put you through endurance tests, obstacle courses, stuff. They make you feel like you should be proud of what you're doing because you're 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 bettering yourself by uh, doing some of this stuff, I guess. And so it just a sense of pride, really, you know. McKetchen had never had much to be proud of, so those little accomplishments and the recognition that came with them meant a lot to him. His parents were there to watch him parade by in his dress blues on graduation day. And despite their initial resistance to his enlistment, they were awed by his transformation. For the moment, McKetchen's plan to create something for himself was working. But boot camp was only level one, and nailing the obstacle course was a cinch compared to what lay ahead. He had enlisted as an 0351. Quick description, an 0351 is an infantry assaultment in the Marine Corps. It's an anti-tank assaultment. We handle anti-tank weapons and explosives, demolition. So we do anything from blowing up walls to breach buildings, breach doors, locked doors, um, bunkers, anything we can blow up, we can get into and destroy Once he finished School of Infantry, McKetchen got assigned to Weapons Platoon Blackfoot Company 1-5, along with David Richvalsky, the machine gunner. Eventually, they both got attached to 1st Platoon and 3rd Squad. The guys had a blast together during their brief time stateside before the deployment. Pendleton's a great spot to be stationed because you go out in a lot of good restaurants, a lot of good bars. A lot of guys were spending all their fucking money, me included, um, just getting getting messed up, partying a lot, a lot of, lot of chicks, a lot of booty tang. So I think, I think most of us were pretty, pretty much just being frivolous with our money. That was the first thing to go. When, when you are aware that you might not come back. The party stopped during the workup for Sangin. They were in the middle of a three-week-long field exercise in the Mojave Desert when the platoon sergeant gathered everybody around for a talk. Basically, his speech to us is that people are going to die. Not all of you are coming back. You're young, and you're like, holy shit. Like, here it goes. I remember, like, you know, O'Brien was there, and McDaniels was, they were there, and Daughtry was there, and they're dead now. The Marines gave McKetchen more than a fresh start and a shot of pride. They gave him what he needed most at that time in his life, the warmth of a new family that knew nothing about his past. From the time he enlisted all the way through the Sangin deployment, McKetchen always had Marines around him, like Michael Dutcher, who supported him like an older brother. Dutcher was always just so calm and just such a caring person. I remember talking with him in Afghanistan even, and he would ask me, what are you going to do after this? I'm like, I don't know. I have no idea. I was scared for the future. I was scared I wasn't going to make it out of there. 
and he started asking me what I was interested in. And I'll be honest with you, back in the day, I was, I liked ecstasy, <laughs> fucking going to raves. And Dutcher was like, well, you could go be a sound and light technician. And I'm 20 years old. I'm like, I don't know what the hell this is, but it sounds cool. McKetchen was terrified, but he was also having the adventure of a lifetime with his Marine brothers. And he did his best to capture every moment they spent together. 779 photos in this album. We huddle around his laptop so he can show us a Facebook gallery of his deployment photos. It's been a long time. I haven't even looked at these in quite a while. Um, the cool thing about these photos, though, it's all sequential. It's all in the order from when we like did, you know, leaving Riverside, starting around here, on our way to Bagram and everything. McKetchen was like the squad's self-appointed documentarian, and no detail was too small to catch his eye. This was in a condom machine in Germany. That's the fucking burn pit with the throw your human feces in a bag in there. And wag bag? Fucking wag bag in it. Fucking look at all our nudies on the wall. Pinups. Yeah, dude. Yes, we jerking off, dude. That's we got we got the material. Did you see the other photo of those two flies having sex? Oh yeah. Yeah, I caught yeah. that. Nice. Yeah, let me know when you catch a fucking piece like that. I'm starting to think McKetchen may have missed his true calling. Along with his more avant-garde work, there are pictures of the cramped, hot rooms where they slept at PB fires, of the villagers they saw on patrol, and of the squad's prickly, palm-sized mascot. Here's the hedgehog. The hedgehog. Dutcher. That was Dutcher's hedgehog. Is that Sonic or a different one? I think he named him Sonic, yeah. He's also got pictures of just about everybody in the platoon. There's four it. Oh, yeah. With his legs. With both of his legs. They're among the last pictures ever taken of some of these guys while they were still in one piece. And some of them, like Dutcher, would never be photographed again. McKetchen was usually behind the camera. That's why I'm not in quite a few of these with my deceased friends and stuff. I was taking their photo. It was definitely not my top priority. But if we were back at the patrol base or something... Had a moment, snap pictures of the guys. Yeah, for sure, absolutely. Like this is a kind of once in a lifetime experience, and you've got to document it. When he finally does point himself out, I barely recognize him. Harry, see, I'm still a little guy. That's you. That's me, man. What the fuck? That does not look like you at all. Because I have a shade. No, it's not the hair. You just look like a totally I was different young. person. McKetchum was only twenty in Sangin. Not the youngest guy in the squad, that was Rich Volsky, but he could have fooled me. I remember being amazed by how scrawny he was, especially since I knew he had to carry one of the heaviest weapons, a 30-pound rocket launcher called the Shoulder-Launched Multi-Purpose Assault Weapon, or SMAW. He looked intimidating enough when he was all geared up, but stripped down to his shorts back at PB Fires, he could have passed for a high school freshman. Here he is back in Sangin. I'm not even a full-grown man yet. Since I graduated high school, I've still been maturing, and I've come out here and I've just changed. Because when you're growing up, you change. McKetchen might not have been a full-grown man, but the power he wielded with his shoulder-fired tank killer astonished him, and still astonishes him. I wasn't even allowed to buy alcohol in the United States, but I could decide who lived and who would fucking die at the hands of my finger in Afghanistan. Crazy. All the third squad guys were tough, but McKetchen had a certain kind of maturity. Like some of the other guys, it came out when I asked him about the Taliban. I think the Taliban, as far as fighting us, 
uh, is com composed of uh, younger people just looking for a purpose in their life. Because in Afghanistan, a lot of the people are poor and have nothing, and they're looking for a way out and something that they can do with their life. So America's here. They can fight America. They can get paid. They can be doing something other than farming land or selling goats at the bazaar. So that's why that's why I think they fight us. You don't think they have any bigger ideological purpose or anything like that? Uh, I think they're uh, they're against democracy. They probably don't like foreigners in their country, but for the most part, I think they're just young kids like us that want a way out. Young kids like us that want a way out. Sounds familiar. A lot of people think the military is a magnet for bad kids. Hard luck cases who have nowhere else to go. In reality, most recruits are middle-class kids with middle-class ambitions and clean records. But the military does serve as one of those break glass and pull in case of emergency levers for young people like McKetchen who just can't quite get their shit together. I ought to know I was one of them. I got kicked out of high school my senior year. I was smoking a lot of weed and starting to experiment with harder drugs. In so many words, I was out of control, and nobody really knew what to do with me. My dad offered to send me to a boot camp-style school for one last chance. It was called Valley Forge Military Academy, and as crazy as it sounds, I loved it. I got good grades and transferred to a four-year college in New York City. But I wasn't ready for freedom. I failed out after one semester. I was 20 years old and pretty sure that I'd already ruined my life. And then one day in July 2001, after my shift at a shitty retail job, I found a flyer on my windshield. It said, join the Army National Guard and get money for college. Just one weekend a month and two weeks every summer. I was a young man looking for a way out. And there it was, like manna from fucking heaven. I only really had one question for the recruiter. Where do I sign? Six weeks later, terrorists hijacked four planes. We understand that a plane has crashed into the World Trade Center. We don't know anything I went to basic training that October as the U.S. invasion of Afghanistan was just beginning. The United States military has begun strikes against al-Qaeda terrorist training camps and military installations of the Taliban regime in Afghanistan. A little more than two years after that, in March 2004, I went to Iraq as a combat engineer. McKetchen and I were looking for the same thing when we called the recruiter. A way out. A chance at a better life than the one we'd already wasted. But as much as we have in common, there's a lot that McKetchen and I don't share. I had one close encounter with a poorly made IED in Iraq. No one in our convoy was seriously hurt. McKetchen witnessed one horrific event after another and spent months on end expecting to die. Sitting at his kitchen table in Kentucky, I ask what he remembers most about living in that pressure cooker. It's the bad memories. Like, that's the first memories that you think about. There's no, there's no doubt about it. 
Like Manuel Mendoza, McKechn is haunted by his memories of the mission to retrieve Nicholas O'Brien's body after he was killed by an IED on June 9th, 2011. Nicholas O'Brien was uh, probably, I think, for all of us, our first major casualty deal that we had to deal with. And uh, this one was rough, uh, okay, because O'Brien, we couldn't find him initially. He was thrown pretty far from the blast. Just a lot of confusion on what the fuck was going on. And long story short, found him. He was deceased. That was the first dead Marine I'd seen to mind you, was, was Nick. But the hardest part was, was afterwards. We were trying to find his body parts, and they were making us put him in evidence bags and, and shit. And we stayed out there all night. We're trying to find his fucking night vision, his gear. And so we're picking up his his body parts. And uh, Rich Falski held up a piece of his fucking thigh to me and said, Look, that was just one of those situations where I'm like, dude, we're in a fucking mad world. Like, this is nuts literally picking up pieces of a, of your dead friend and then later that night we stayed watched because I believe we hadn't retrieved all of his gear and equipment that we were trying to account for body parts too and so we're sitting basically a tree line right where O'Brien was killed got blown up and uh, I hear wild Afghan dogs they're fucking close, dude. But you can't see shit, really, on night vision. Maybe a thermal, yeah. But all I could think was, dude, these dogs are fucking eating my friend. I'm lucky not to have any memories like that from my deployment to Iraq. I wasn't there the day two guys from my company got killed by a suicide bomber. But I've got my own memories of dogs. My platoon spent a few weeks doing IED patrols and security for forensic pathologists near the amazingly well-preserved ruins of an ancient Parthian city called Alhatra. The pathologists were digging up mass graves which contained corpses of Kurdish civilians. A few hundred of the more than 50,000 Kurds who were murdered by Saddam Hussein's henchmen in the 1980s. The pathologists were collecting evidence to use in Saddam's war crimes trial. And because of the dry desert conditions, the bodies were well-preserved. One long pit was filled with men still in their suits and dress shoes. And in another pit, there were piles of women in colorful dresses, with children lying beside them. Guarding the site for the evidence team seemed to me like a worthwhile mission, even if the rest of the war had stopped making sense. But every night, while we were back at our patrol base, the dogs would come in. They would pull back the tarps to gnaw on the corpses. In the morning, we would pull the tarps back again. I can still hear the flies buzzing and smell the damp rot in the air. The smell of a dumpster on a warm day at the beach. Hardly a day goes by without a memory like this one creeping into my thoughts. 
So how often do you think about those days these days? Oh, man. Uh, I'll never forget them, dude. You know what I mean? Like, I don't intentionally try to think about those days. But I do unavoidably think about them. Like, they pop into my head all the fucking time. It's like cancer. Once you go through something so traumatic like that, it's going to be ingrained in you. So what is PTSD for you? What is it? For me, I have a lack of patience, easily frustrated, like thinking about horrible memories from the past that you just can't get out of your head. Got to get fucked up to go to sleep to function. I have to smoke weed every day. Like, (laughs) I mean, that's PTSD, right? In the early days after McKechn got kicked out of the Marine Corps, his attempts to self-medicate his PTSD sent him barreling in a potentially fatal direction. In Las Vegas, in a matter of a few months, he wrecked a car, got two DUIs, lost his driver's license, got evicted from his apartment, and found himself without enough money for food and clothes, but with a bottle of pills that suddenly seemed as dangerous as a gun. He had survived the war, And now, he was fighting to survive the peace. We'll be back after the break. Hannah Storm and my podcast NBA DNA with Hannah Storm digs deep into the history of professional basketball along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with from Dr. J to Charles Barkley and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rock the baby to sleep and slam dunk. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. I'm thinking about it quite often. 
Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Here we go, Buds, gun shop and range. Yeah, the biggest one in Lexington. This is where people like to come shoot and buy their guns, especially buy their stuff. Since we have the whole day together, we take a break to go to one of McKetchen's favorite places. Doesn't look too crowded today either. McKetchen loves his guns. You don't name your dog after the country's biggest firearms manufacturer for nothing. Gunner's gonna be on lane 10, door number one. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. All right, clock's ticking. Yeah. When we get to our lane on the range, McKetchen cracks open a long black Pelican case that's like a clown car for guns. He's got a Glock 9mm pistol, a pump 12-gauge shotgun, and a Ruger AR-15 rifle that's almost identical to the M4 he carried slung across his back in Sangin. I'm going to go for that bottom left target. I like it. Yeah. That smells so good. I love the smell of gunpowder. Yeah, it feels good, doesn't it? It does. It's been a while, man, since I've been out shooting. Blasting off a few mags is one of the ways McKetchen likes to take the edge off. And I can assure you, the dopamine release is exquisite. Back at the house, McKetchen shows me another one of his relaxation methods. You want some sound to it? This is going to sound like a propane torch. I'll just get it like nice and red. I've smoked a lot of weed in my day, but I've never seen anything quite like this. It's called dabs. Um, It's basically just like concentrated THC. So they take the buds and they process it and they process the oil out of it. And then instead of just smoking the flower, you're smoking the oil. He scoops out a tiny glob of what looks like honey from a small canister. So then you just like basically just dab it on there and hit it like a bond. <coughs> it's a little hot. <coughs> there we go. It's fucking high now. We get. <laughs> McKetchen's still wary of pills after his dark days in Vegas. Like a lot of veterans, and plenty of non-veterans, he prefers to smoke pot to cope with his anxiety and PTSD. After his high settles into a mellow buzz, we sit down to talk again. I want to talk more about Dutcher, and McKetchen tells me about this time his rocket launcher jammed when they were in the middle of a firefight, and it was Dutcher who bailed him out. Scary, because you're getting shot at, and your weapon's not shooting. And it's a bad feeling. And Dutcher came over and, and knew what to do to help me fucking flip the rocket out. And we got it off. And like it's just his knowledge was, was unreal. Never met a Marine with knowledge like him. Then McKetchen tells me something I didn't know about the day Dutcher got killed. We had no sweepers left. Everyone been fucking hurt. I had my rocket launcher. And I'd done some sweeping for sure. But they wanted me to take my rocket out and sweep. I'm like, I'm not sweeping with a rocket launcher. Are you crazy? Like, what the fuck? There was some crazy shit going on late in that deployment. Honestly, I, I gotta say, I didn't want to do it. I didn't. i seen what been happening. I didn't want it, dude. But at the same time, too, like, if I was the option, then yeah, for sure I would. 
And I was about to just put the rocket down and just fucking do it. And Dutcher came in my hooch and was like, I'll sweep. These are the simple twists of fate that deliver tragedy to one home and spare another. Dutcher wasn't destined to die that day. Nobody was. It came down to a last-minute change of plans and a well-played trick by a Taliban operative posing as a farmer. But it could have gone a hundred different ways. Had McKetchen sweat that day, it might have been his mom who found a casualty officer in dress blues at her door. Or maybe the squad would have chosen a different route. Maybe they wouldn't have followed that farmer into the trap. Maybe McKetchen would have found the IED with his metal detector. Or maybe half the squad would have walked over it none the wiser, just like they walked over the one that got Matthew for it. The what-ifs can pile up to the point where they bury you. A lot of the other guys have taken a lot of the blame on themselves. And so one of the things that I've been learning is just how everybody almost who was anywhere close to the front of that patrol or had any kind of leadership you can't, responsibility. I can't, you can't put any of that blame on yourself. None of us did anything wrong whatsoever. Yes. Yeah, so Plain that, and simple facts. That's kind of what I was Absolutely. getting at. Absolutely. We did everything that we were supposed to do perfectly. We were a great fucking unit. We were fucking, we were crack. So what does it make you, like, how do you feel hearing other guys talk about placing the blame on themselves. I think it's sad. I, I, I really do. And even if my, hopefully my guys go back and hear this shit because no one did anything wrong. And if you feel that way, it's just going to hold you back. Okay. So somehow you came to a conclusion or a point of view that it wasn't going to do you any good to blame yourself or have, you know, for what, why would I, what did I do? So I want to know, did you feel that way as soon as you got home? Or is that... Is that... I never had a guilty conscience. Never. Never. I saw some fucked up shit. And so, yeah, I'd go do drugs and fucking drink a lot. Maybe kind of try to block those memories out of my mind. But we didn't do anything wrong. That's just war. People fucking die. People get hurt. McKetchins managed to stave off the guilt that plagued some of the other guys, like Manuel Mendoza and Matthew Forrest. But he's still carrying the hurt. He'll never forget being spurned by the country he pledged his life to protect. The country that asked him to kill people in the service of foreign policy, but abandoned him on account of a single bad choice when he got home. It's not like I did not know there wouldn't be consequences to my actions. So there's definitely a point where you just gotta own up to your fucking faults. And I fully own up to it. Like, I knew for years... That they told us no drug use. What did I do? What did I do? This is before combat they were telling me that's not acceptable. I still fucking broke the rules. But I think the punishment for the crime was way excessive. And that's my stance. Like, that's, like, come on. Especially for someone who just risked their life on an entire deployment. Throw me a fucking bone. McKetchen says his jarring re-entry into civilian life made an already difficult situation that much worse. If you're going to fucking throw people out of the military, you should at least 
provide mental health if they've been to combat. You don't have any support. It makes things tougher. Like it does. And then also the feeling that like when you get in trouble like that, you feel like your former friends in the Marines and shit don't even want to associate with you. But I think that for future people, if you were to make a situation like this a little easier on the veteran, even if he made a mistake, I think it would be good to at least point him in the right direction. I think McKetchen's right. I can't think of any reason why people who are damaged doing the work of war for the country should be denied the tools of healing back home. There's got to be some sort of fucking system to guide somebody so they don't just go out there fucking taking pills and getting DUIs and maybe killing somebody, you know, and legitimately maybe killing somebody. The military got rid of McKetchen when he was still amped up and reeling from the horror he'd survived. He was a danger to himself and to others. Rather than keeping him close, his Marine family cut him loose. And he wasn't alone. He was part of a wave of more than 100,000 less-than-honorable discharges across branches in the post-9-11 era. A wave of bad paper that crested as the wars began to wind down. What I heard, and I still hear... Uh, to this day, they, they try to keep their numbers around 200,000. They were kicking people out left and right, young Marines coming back from deployment, failing drug tests, making a poor decision that any young man would make. Only a few years earlier, during the worst phase of the Iraq War and the build-up to the Afghanistan surge, the Army and Marine Corps had relaxed enlistment standards in order to fill the recruiting pipeline, allowing people with criminal histories, mental health, and substance issues to join at unusually high rates with special waivers. But once the surge years were over, the military started looking to cut dead weight. Soldiers and Marines getting into trouble were the easiest ones to call. The ones who were caught using drugs or got DUIs. The ones who brought the violence into their homes. Not surprisingly, a lot of them had serious mental health and behavioral problems directly related to their combat service. McKetchen and I talked about this for a long time. Like, I want to be clear, this is, this is my opinion about all this, but I think what they were doing is they were getting rid of people because that was easier than dealing with them. That was e- easier than That's keep, a good point. keeping them close to the, the, the fam, keeping yeah. them in the tribe and saying, you're fucked up and we're not going to tolerate that. But while we have you here and while you have no choice, we're going to try to get you straight because Number one, that's the right thing to do. We owe that to you. Number two, if we turn you loose on society right now, there's a damn good chance you're going to hurt yourself or you're going to hurt somebody else. Mm -hmm. Because you're a fucking trained killer with a fucking twisted head right now. Yeah, for sure. And that's dangerous. Yeah. That's fucking dangerous. You know, and so for a lot of people in that situation, it might have resulted in, you know, they go out and get a DUI. And, and that DUI no, could have been, you could have well, died. And a D, uh, let me, mind you, DUI is a misdemeanor. You know, all these guys coming out, they can still buy guns, though. That's right, what course. I'm saying. Yeah. And so, like, if you, they're throwing you down this fucking negative track and everything, you know, this veteran's still able to buy guns. It's a recipe for disaster. Like, it really it is. is. It is funny that we're say- we're saying this, but we did just come from the gun range today. Yeah, we did. <laughs> Great time. Yeah. 
Um, but we got our heads straight, so I do at least now. McKetchen tells me he's in a much better place now. He left Las Vegas in 2017 to work on a hemp farm in Colorado with a marine buddy. He was able to save some money, and then he followed the hemp business to Kentucky. The AMVETS attorney successfully upgraded his discharge to honorable for VA purposes, which makes him eligible for all the benefits his recruiter promised. In 2020, he bought the house he lives in with a no-money-down VA home loan. He also receives disability from the VA for PTSD, TBI, tinnitus, and hearing loss, which pays most of his bills. And he's using his GI Bill to get his associate's degree, which entitles him to a monthly housing allowance, too. He's planning to transfer to the University of Kentucky to get a degree in marketing, and he's got a dream to work for a professional sports team someday. But he's still thousands of miles from where he grew up, in a random place where he knows almost no one. And even though the California kid has picked up a little Kentucky twang, it doesn't really seem like this place is home. It's sad, dude, because, like, clearly I live alone. I don't hardly talk to my fucking family. I really don't. Never had a problem finding ass. But I don't have anything fucking close in my life. Dude, I don't. I have Ruger. I have my dog. That's it. McKetchen tells me he's got a few good Marine buddies from other battalions he can lean on, but they live far away, and he doesn't talk much with the guys from 3rd Squad anymore. He says he doesn't really have any close friends in Kentucky, and he has a really hard time relating to people. When I go out into the public, I, I, I try to be courteous and respectful, but my patience for people is very low. It really is. And the thing that has really affected me heavily since coming back from a deployment like that, honestly, is my ability to feel sympathetic or empathetic for other human beings. I don't. Because I just, I've been through so much. I don't care what fucking people's problems are. And that's one area of my life that I'm trying to work on because that's part of being a good human being. I realize that. But after coming back from shit like that, dude... I don't feel sympathy for people at all. Can you relate? I mean... Yeah, so here's what's happened for me. I came home from Iraq fucking angry and mean. So yeah, I sort of looked down on everybody else's problems because I was like, it just doesn't write. You don't deserve my concern because I've seen a, a world where the suffering is so much more extreme. And yet the other half of me was like, but everything's relative for everybody. And I can't walk through the world just hating everyone. If I just walk around, like nobody else's problems matter. And like, I'm the only one who knows what's real. Right. Well, you know, what's going to happen is I'm going to be the one who's sitting at home alone. Yeah. Look at me, dude. As we're talking, I start to wonder if the brief years of fraternity in the Marine Corps were worth the rest of it. The grief and devastation of losing brothers like Dutcher. The PTSD. The betrayal that could not have come at a worse moment. Basically, I wonder if the Marines made his life better or worse. They broke me down and then everything since, like, I built off of it. It made me who I am today. I'm a Marine. I will be a Marine until I die. I'm always a neat person. I'm clean. 
I dress well, I shave my face, I get a haircut, I fucking do still make my bed. Like, yeah, the Marine Corps built nice little fucking foundation for me to build on, and the Marine Corps is what got my shit together. But during that time when you were in the low place, how much do you think your experience in Sangin had to do with that? Like, and if and if it did have something to do with it, how do you think that worked? Like, what do you think the relationship? Okay, between- I hate to say it like this, but it's kind of facts. Okay, when you lose a lot of friends, and then you get to a fucking super low point in your life, and you use the excuse almost like, "Well, I just want to go see my friends." Like it makes your logic. To kill yourself and end it so much more logical in your own head because you've got friends up there waiting for you and you miss them and you want to go see them. When I listen back to this conversation months later, that thing McKetchen said about the logic of suicide gave me chills. More than 7,000 American troops have died in combat since 9 11 mostly in Iraq and Afghanistan. Over the same period, more than 30,000 active duty troops and post-9-11 veterans have taken their own lives at home. McKetchen and I both know people who've succumbed to the deadly logic. And I suddenly realized that when he said, you've got friends up there waiting for you, and you miss them and you want to go see them, I wasn't sure if he was describing a general thought pattern or his own suicidal ideations. So I called to double check. He told me the thoughts he described were indeed his own, and that soon after his jail stint in Vegas, when he was at rock bottom, he began to tell himself it would have been better if he'd just died in Afghanistan, that he just wanted to be with O'Brien, McDaniels, and Dutcher. That voice grew louder until one day he was holding a pistol with a plan to shoot his dog and then turn the gun on himself but he couldn't bring himself to kill Ruger. His trance broke long enough to call his mom. She immediately called the police and they brought him to a hospital. And when he was released after the mandatory 72 hours, he was shaken and more determined than ever to stay alive. It was around that time that he got his VA benefits restored. He began therapy, went back to school and started collecting disability payments that relieved the financial pressure. In no uncertain terms, McKetchen says that having his discharge upgraded and his benefits restored saved his life. When we spoke again, McKetchen assured me his worst days are behind him. He's looking toward the future, and he's no longer in a hurry to see his dead friends. But they're always with him. He's got tattoos to commemorate them including a tangle of poppy blossoms growing out of a skull on his right forearm. The ink begins just above the thin hand that once squeezed the grip of a rocket launcher in Sangin. The hand of a scared kid, with the power to decide who lived and who died. It 
If you're having thoughts about suicide or self-harm, please don't wait to get help. Call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255 to talk to someone now. Next time on Third Squad, we drive up through Appalachia to the outskirts of Pittsburgh to see squad leader Jarek Fry. I remember stepping out of the wire. We're walking in a single file line with a metal detector in the front, which is nothing that I've experienced before. And that moment, I accepted that I wasn't going to make it out of there, except on a helicopter or in a body bag. You can't be afraid as a leader. You can't show fear. You have to be that strong, steady rock. And I wanted to be that for those guys. Third Squad is written and produced by Elliot Woods, Tommy Andres, and Maria Byrne. It's an heirloom media production distributed by iHeartMedia. Funding support for Third Squad comes from the National Endowment for the Humanities in collaboration with the Center for War and Society at San Diego State University. Additional funding for this episode comes from the journalism nonprofit The Economic Hardship Reporting Project. If you're interested in supporting our work with a financial contribution, please visit the donate page at thirdsquad.com, where you'll also find photographs from Sangin and from our road trip. Original music for Third Squad by Mondo Boys. Editing and sound design by John Ward. Fact-checking by Ben Kalin. Special thanks to Scott Carrier, Marianne Andre, Ted Genoways, Benjamin Bush, Caitlin Esch, Carrie Gracie, Kevin Connolly, and Lena Ferguson. If you got a minute, please leave us a rating in your preferred podcast app. It'll help other people find the show. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter, at Elliot Woods. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.